Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here this morning. Um, as has been said already, my name's Peter. Um, I worship at Deeside, and I bring greetings from all of your friends there. Um, earlier this morning, Paul reminded me that the last time I was here, it was the Sunday just before the lockdown of COVID. <laughs> so hopefully this is not a portent of doom and something terrible is about to happen after this. Um, but if you've got your Bibles open, um, please turn to Matthew chapter 27. And we're reading from verses 15 to 31. That's Matthew 27, 15 to 31. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called the Messiah. For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. And while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again and they had mocked him after that they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and then they led him away to crucify him Amen let's just ask for God's help this morning um, as we look at these passages together Father God we come before you this morning you sit in an eternal throne and rule over all things Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sharper than a double-edged sword. Father, thank you that you want to speak to us this morning and that you are here in the person of your spirit. So, Father, make us receptive to what it is you have to say to us this morning and open our hearts. And, Lord, let it not be the case that we would open this and then immediately forget what you've said to us. But, Father, help it to change us and to transform us into the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. And this morning, we're going to continue your series in Matthew, and we're going to be looking at the passage that we read together. 
A few weeks ago, I received a bill for about £400. The bill was for a a debt I didn't owe, but it was a debt that I was willing to pay. You see, a few months before the bill arrived, my youngest son, Forbes, was cycling along the pavement outside our house on his bicycle. And our neighbour's car was parked in the driveway. And as Forbes cycled past, the gear lever on Forbes's brake scraped along almost, unbelievably, the full length of the bumper on our neighbour's car and it left a very deep and a fairly impressive scratch. And having quite a strong survival instinct that he's inherited from his dad, (laughs) Forbes decided that he didn't fancy going to speak to the neighbour, so he came home and told me what had happened. And he was pretty sheepish, to be fair, um, but even more sheepish when I led him round to the neighbour's house to confess to what had happened and made him apologise. And I said to the neighbour, standing on his doorstep, whatever the cost, whatever the cost, I will pay to have the damage repaired. You see, there was a debt that had to be paid. It was a debt that Forbes owed. But he's eight. How is he going to pay this debt? But you see, Forbes is my son. And I love him, despite what had just happened. And although I didn't owe the debt, I willingly paid it. And the debt that Forbes owed has been paid in full. And the Bible says that we have all sinned. We have all committed an offence against God, who the Bible says is holy, holy, holy. And the penalty or the debt that we owe for our sin is death. R.C. Sproul said, the gospel is only good news when we understand the bad news. So that's the bad news. You owe a debt to a holy God, which you can't pay. But here's the good news. That because God loves you, He sent Jesus to pay the debt that you owe. And Jesus willingly paid it for you when he died on the cross for your sins. Jesus came to pay a debt he didn't owe. Because you and I, well we owe a debt that we can't pay. And holding that thought this morning, I think helps us to understand this passage that we're looking at. You see, the passage that we're looking at this morning is a story that is within a story. At one level, it's a sad, and I think if we're honest, quite a disturbing story of an innocent man who's been abandoned by his friends. He's been framed by the corrupt leaders of a religious sect. He's been tried by an incompetent Roman official who, to avoid a riot, hands this innocent man over to be beaten and then to be crucified to satisfy the bloodlust of a baying mob. But that story sits within another story. It's a bigger story that began thousands of years earlier when Adam and Eve sinned, disobeying God's command for life in the Garden of Eden. He had created a whole paradise of yes and one tree of no. But Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan. They were deceived by the serpent in the garden and they ate from the tree that they were told not to eat from. And in their sin and shame, they hid from God. And God made them leave the garden to go away from his holy presence. But not before God had promised a saviour. God hadn't finished with mankind. He still loved his created man and he would rescue them 
from the consequences of their sin. So he was going to send a perfect, sinless man who would crush Satan, who would take the punishment that our sins deserved and by his death make a way for us to come back and be reconciled to a holy God. Jesus came to pay a debt he didn't owe because you and I owe a debt that we can't pay. And we're going to break up the passage this morning into two parts. First part is verses 15 to 25. That's a sinless saviour, a perfect sacrifice. And then the second part is verses 26 to 31. By his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. So let's pick up the story. We're in Jerusalem. It's the morning of the Jewish feast of Passover and Jews from all over have gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate how God had rescued their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. The normal population, we're told, of Jerusalem is about 25,000. But at festival time, many times that number are gathered together inside the walls of this ancient city. The Roman Empire, who occupy most of Israel, have brought reinforcements into the city to jump on any rebellion. It's a tinderbox atmosphere. And nothing is more likely to start a rebellion against the current captors of Israel than thousands of Jews gathered together in their occupied capital, celebrating a time when God rescued them from captivity. The night before Jesus has been arrested, he's been arrested by the religious leaders and in a kangaroo court, he's been convicted of blasphemy by his own confession that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. And according to Jewish law, blasphemy is punishable by death. And according to the religious leaders, that is exactly what Jesus deserves. But there are two problems. The first is that the religious leaders didn't have the authority to pass the death sentence, let alone carry it out. Only the Roman governor could do that. And the second problem was that blasphemy against the Jewish God wasn't a crime punishable by death under Roman law. So having decided that Jesus must die, the religious leaders had to come up with a way to get the Romans not only to pass the sentence, but also to carry it out. In Luke's account of the story, the religious leaders bring Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate, the man with the authority to have Jesus executed, with accusations against him that he said, and he's done things which are a direct attack on the Roman Empire. He's subverting the nation. He's opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. He's even claimed to be the king of the Jews, when we all know that the only king is Caesar, and an accusation of stirring up rebellion. And even though we can see in the passage that we read in verse 11 that when Jesus is questioned by Pilate, he admits to the charge of being the king of the Jews. But Pilate doesn't take him seriously. And in Luke's account, Pilate goes back to the religious leaders and says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Pilate knows the intentions of the religious leaders. And so to avoid making a decision about Jesus that could have disastrous consequences, he sends him to Herod, who was the puppet king of Galilee, installed by the Romans and had jurisdiction over Jesus as a Galilean. Pilate is really hoping that Herod will deal with this problem. 
But if you know the story, you'll know that after Herod has mocked Jesus, he sends him back to Pilate. And in sending him back, this problem comes back to Pilate. What to do with this innocent man? And as we saw in the passage, Matthew tells us that it was the governor's custom at festival time to release a prisoner to the crowd. So in a final attempt to avoid making a decision, rather than let the crowd choose from any of the prisoners that they're holding, Pilate gives them a choice of two men. If you like, two men from either side of the moral spectrum. On the one hand, there's Barabbas, who is a murderous revolutionary. Or there's Jesus, who's called the Messiah, who was known for his kindness, his miracles, his teaching, and his generosity. Surely... Even this crowd, who Pilate knew respected the outward morality of their religious leaders, surely this crowd would pick Jesus over Barabbas. After all, Pilate heard that even some of them had thrown their cloaks and palm branches in front of the donkey that Jesus had rode into the city on just a few days earlier. Who knows, maybe some of those in the crowd still had hoof marks on their back. But in verse 20, the religious leaders whip up the crowd because they need to achieve the outcome that they want. They persuade the crowd to call for the release of Barabbas and for the execution of Jesus. So when Pilate asks the crowd for their decision as to who he should release, they call out for Barabbas. And when he asks them what it is he should do with Jesus, You see in verse 22, they all answered in one voice, crucify him. Pilate asks, why? What crime has he committed? What crime has he committed that could possibly be deserving of one of the cruelest forms of execution ever designed by man? And instead of giving an answer, the crowd just shout louder, crucify him. And seeing that he's not getting anywhere... And that an uproar is starting and that this rebellion that he's worried about so much might actually happen. He takes his hands and he washes his hands in water in front of the crowd. And he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And the crowd answered again in a single voice. His blood is on us and our children. And except for the accounts of the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus, who write, both of them, about Pilate's involvement in Jesus' crucifixion, we don't know very much about Pilate, the man. There's quite a lot of speculation and opinions vary. But whatever we think about him, in this passage he asks a question that is relevant for each of us. And how we answer it will have eternal consequences. Do you see it? Do you see the question he asks in verse 22? What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? The term Messiah is a Hebrew translation of anointed one, which was the title that was given to the one who would be the saviour of the world, the one that would come to set people free from their sin. So let's go back to the thought that I asked you to hold at the beginning. Jesus came to pay a debt he didn't owe because you and I owe a debt that we can't pay. And so surely the answer about what we do with this man, Jesus, this man who is called the Messiah, well, 
Surely that comes down to whether or not he is the Messiah. Whether he is the one who has the power to rescue me from my sin. And it's clear from the passage that Pilate, the religious leaders, the crowd, all of them reject Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, to be the King of the Jews, to be the Son of God. And Matthew doesn't want us to make the same mistake. Matthew wants us to recognise that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is innocent of any crime, even the Jewish crime of blasphemy. You can't be guilty of blasphemy, of saying that you're the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. And from this account, it's also clear that you can see that Pilate believes that Jesus is innocent. In verse 18, Pilate says that he knew that it was out of self-interest that the religious leaders had handed Jesus over to him. The Jews were waiting for a serpent crusher. They were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for this long-promised rescuer that had been written about in the Old Testament. Surely if Jesus was the Messiah, then the religious leaders should have been the ones who were the first in the queue to go and worship him. But Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted. They wanted a warrior king that was going to come in and liberate them from the oppression of the Romans. Not some peasant carpenter from the backwaters of Galilee who had said some pretty nasty things about what they stood for and had openly criticised them for the hypocrisy of the religion that they practised which appeared to be about looking as though you were right with God rather than being right with God. And then there's the strange bit in the passage, isn't there, about Pilate's wife who had a dream and warns her husband in verse 19 not to have anything to do with this innocent man, Jesus. And when the crowd demand that Jesus is crucified, Pilate says, why? Crime has he committed? Crime has he committed? Remember we said earlier that this is a story within a story. So while at one level we see in the passage a story of a sickening miscarriage of justice, we need to look at the bigger story of the serpent-crushing saviour. And in this bigger story, Jesus is not only innocent, the Bible says that he is perfect. He is perfect. What a claim. Isn't that an outrageous claim for anybody to say that they're perfect? So why did it matter so much? Why does Matthew want us to know that Jesus is innocent? And not only innocent, but perfect. Well, the Messiah, if that is who Jesus is, had to be perfect to satisfy the righteous requirements of the Jewish law that only a lamb without a defect was an acceptable sacrifice for sin. God had told the people of Israel that if they obeyed the commands he gave them for sinless living, He would dwell with them. He would be their God. They would be his chosen people. In fact, God said that you would be my treasured possessions and that you would be kind of a signpost that would point all of the nations to my glory and that they would see the blessings that come with those who dwell with me. But Israel couldn't keep the commands of the law and God was angered by their disobedience. And because he is holy and because In his justice, he demands that sin or law-breaking is punished. God commanded that for him to dwell with his people, for him to continue to dwell with his people, there needed to be a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was to be a lamb without blemish or defect. 
to take the punishment for the sins of the people or to put it another way it had to be a perfect lamb and when Israel were in the desert after God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and he gave them the commands for this necessary sacrifice that only a perfect lamb would do it wasn't the first time that the people had heard God talk about a perfect lamb that would protect them from God's anger earlier God had punished Egypt for refusing to release the Israelites from slavery by sending the final curse against Pharaoh and that the angel of death would pass over the land of Egypt and kill every firstborn except for those who were living in a house where the blood of a lamb had been painted on the doorposts and God had commanded that it wasn't just to be any lamb it had to be a perfect lamb And for those people living in those houses, the angel of death passed over them. They were safe beneath the blood of the lamb, the perfect sacrifice. It was God's rescue, saved from death by the blood of a perfect lamb, that Passover that the people are celebrating on this day. God's rescue of those under the blood of of the perfect lamb. Do you see what Matthew wants us to think about? Do you see where he's going with this? As Jesus stands before Pilate, the religious leaders and a baying mob and is declared innocent, he's not just innocent. He is perfect. He is the perfect lamb of God. He is the perfect lamb of God to be sacrificed on this Passover once and for all for the sins of the world. When John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time at the start of Jesus' public ministry, John told his disciples, look, behold, it's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the Messiah had to be perfect to satisfy the requirements of the law. But also by living a sinless life, Jesus defeated the power of sin and had complete dominance over it. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way and yet didn't sin. But having been tempted, he understands the struggle that we have with it. And the Bible talks about our sin that easily entangles us. If Jesus had sinned, he would have been subject to the punishment of the law and therefore powerless to save us from our sins. He would have been imperfect in the way that you and I are, and his sacrifice would not have been acceptable to God. Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Corinth, the sting of death is sin. So the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, because the law tells us how far short we come of God's (coughs) standards. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus had to be perfect not only to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law and to be the last and perfect sacrifice for sin, but he also had to be perfect to make us perfect. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that an incredible thought? We said earlier that it would be an absolutely outrageous claim for anybody to say that they are perfect. But the Bible says that if you're a Christian this morning, then you have a perfect standing before a holy God. Because God has credited you with Jesus' perfect record of righteousness. Jesus' perfect record is credited to your sinful account. We are clothed with righteousness. 
We are clothed with the perfection of Jesus. And that's what God sees when he looks at his people. I am a Christian this morning. And this is my outrageous claim. When God looks at me, he sees me as being perfect. If you're a Christian this morning, then you have an outrageous claim too. That you are seen as being perfect before a holy God. Do you need to hear that this morning? In another letter to the church in Corinth, Paul says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When I paid the debt Forbes owed to my slightly angry neighbour, Forbes was free of the debt. When Jesus paid the debt that I owe by taking the punishment for my sins, he didn't just free me from my debt. God gave me forever Jesus' perfect record of righteousness. Not that I live a perfect life, far from it. I have to ask for forgiveness every day. But God promises to work through me by the person of his Holy Spirit to make me perfect so that as I submit to him my life more closely matches how God already sees me until the day when I see Jesus face to face and I will be like him in his perfection. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. By one sacrifice he has made, past tense, perfect forever, future tense, those who are being made, current tense, holy. By one sacrifice he has made, forever, those who are being made holy. So let's go back to verse 22 and ask ourselves Pilate's question. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? If you're not a Christian this morning, let me encourage you, along with Matthew, not to make the same mistake that Pilate made, or the same mistake that the religious leaders or the crowd made, Because if the Bible is true, we're all going to be asked one day, by God, what did you do with Jesus, the Messiah? And how we answer will have eternal consequences. I find it mind-blowing that one day we will stand before God and our ears will hear that question being asked. Jesus is the sinless saviour, the perfect sacrifice, who came to pay a debt he didn't owe. By accepting the free gift of salvation, God in love and grace gives us life and peace. He credits us, as we've seen, with Jesus' perfect record of righteousness. He comes to dwell in us by the person of his Holy Spirit to work in perfecting us, us who are already called perfect, for eternal life with him. And this is the gospel. And it's good news on what we choose to do with Jesus has eternal consequences. If you're a Christian this morning, and you already know the peace and joy of sins forgiven, then worship him and live the lives that you need to live to honour him until the day when you are made like him. And tell others, it's one of your jobs as a Christian, tell others about the goodness and the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ because by his wounds you have been healed. You haven't earned it, you don't deserve it. You've been healed by his wounds. And that is, very briefly, our second point. You know, we'll never grasp, I don't think, how much God loves us. Or what it costs Jesus to save us. David wrote in the Psalms that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. 
as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Verses 26 to 31 are a hard, hard read, aren't they? But the brutality of the treatment of Jesus suffered for us gives us a sense of how a holy God views sin. It gives us a sense of how much God loves us and what it cost him to save us. Then Pilate released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Jesus was beaten with a whip that had bits of broken bone and metal in it so that it tore the flesh from his bones. It was such a severe form of punishment that some prisoners didn't even survive the beating. He would have been left in agony. He would have been unrecognisable. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah the prophet wrote that people would hide their faces from Jesus. They despised him and they did not honour him as the Son of God. If it helps, maybe close your eyes when I read this. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. And they put a staff in his hand and then they knelt down in front of him and they mocked him. Hail the king of the Jews, they said. And then they spit on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on his broken body. And then they led him away to crucify him. And you know, Isaiah highlights the most shameful part. That we hid our faces. That we despised him. That we dishonoured him. But all of it he willingly endured for us. Although he was mighty God and could have destroyed them at a word. He willingly endured the pain and suffering for you. Each lash of the whip. The shame, the hate, the cruelty. Every fleck of spit. Every hair torn from the beard on his face. Isaiah says he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed and after Jesus was crucified he rose again as a demonstration that the punishment for sin had been paid God's wrath against sin had been satisfied, sin and death had been defeated, and that we can receive forgiveness. And we can receive forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and eternal life. And as you'll see in the next few weeks as you continue your series, death could not hold this Lord of life. Jesus told his disciples, no one takes my life from me, nobody has the power or authority to take my life from me. And because of that, I willingly lay it down. That's the only way that it can happen. And since I lay it down, only I have the power and authority to take it back up again. And when Jesus appeared to his disciples in his resurrection body, the wounds that he suffered during his crucifixion were still visible. The marks in his hands where the nails went in, the wound on his side. So imagine the events of this day. This day of Passover celebration almost 2,000 years ago. You might think that these wounds would have been wounds of shame. 
And so that they wouldn't appear on Jesus' perfect resurrection body. I know that if somebody told me that I was going to have a resurrection body, I wouldn't want my imperfections to appear. These wounds of shame. But these are not wounds of shame. These are marks of Jesus' victory over sin and death. As the hymn writer wrote, Crown him with many crowns. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds yet visible above. With beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear the sight that downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. Son of God would surrender his life for us. This is your God. This is the Lord of life. This is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he is our only hope in life and death. And as we close this morning and we go into another week, be mindful that we're stepping closer to that day when we will hear God say to us, what did you do with Jesus who was called the Messiah? Because what we choose to do, and God always honours our choice, God gives us dignity, he honours the choices that we make, because what we choose to do with Jesus the Messiah has eternal consequences. And as I was thinking about this, I wanted to leave us with this thought, the words of the writer to the Hebrews. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most high place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. As Jesus also suffered outside the city gate on Calvary, to make the people holy through his blood, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For we do not have an enduring city, we are just passing through. But we are looking for that city that is to come. Our time is gone this morning. Um, But let me just leave a moment of silence for you to reflect on, on the passage and then I'll close in prayer. high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his love for those who fear him as far as the east is from the west so far as he removed our transgressions from us Father if there are people here this morning that don't know the reality of what it feels like to have their sins removed from them as far as the east is from the west as a result of the death of Jesus the innocent and perfect Lamb of God then Father please open the eyes of their hearts this morning And Father, for those of us who do know that, who have experienced that joy, those who you are telling have a right standing before you, who are already called perfect and who you are perfecting through the person of your Holy Spirit, Father, help us to live our lives that are honouring to you. Help us to remember that we are dead to sin and that we are alive in Christ. And that this week... We are your witnesses, here, there, and to the ends of the earth. Help us to take that commission and calling seriously. And thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we have life, and are heirs of yours, and co-heirs with Christ. And we offer up our prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.